well, it must be summer because I don't think I ran off all these people. Is it vacation time? Right? Folks, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I'm excited about today's sermon. Actually, I'm kind of pumped up for it, really. Um, the title is 180, The Joy of Ministry, and I'm going to explain all that. Before we jump into our text, I want to read Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Two words in that text. Make disciples. We have a mission in the Great Commission. And that's what this verse is all about. It's called the Great Commission. We've been commissioned for a task, meaning we have a mission to make disciples. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to use the framework um, and build it around Paul and the Thessalonian church. So, in Acts 17, the author Luke, he describes what happened to Paul, Silas, and Timothy during their time in Thessalonica. That is, how they were torn away from the brothers. Now, this new church, it was orphaned, okay? It was orphaned like a child being separated from his or her parents. We got to remember in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul describes himself as a parent, like a loving mother and like a father who encouraged. Paul expresses a deep feeling of loss due to his departure, and he is concerned about the persecutions and the afflictions uh, that um, the Thessalonican church is facing. So he realizes that they need to be further established in the faith. We can sense Paul's longing. We can sense his compassion. We can sense his affection for the church in Thessalonica as we read his letter to them. In fact, Paul is picking up in this first letter to the Thessalonians, he is picking up in this letter where Luke leaves off in Acts 17, where Luke left off. So how I like to do this today, if you'll look in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 with me. 17 and 18. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, we're going to review why they could not get back to them, why they were torn away. Um, we're going to put it up for you on the screen here. Acts 17, verses 5 and 6. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. Jason was their host. 
They wanted Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but they couldn't find him, uh, that group. So they went for the host. They went for Jason and some of the other brothers that were hosting them and dragged them before the authorities. Acts 17.10, I'm going to go on here. Acts 17.10 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. At night, so you know there was danger afoot. They had to send them out at night, two of them. They left for Berea. Acts 17, 13 and 14. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, where he was just sent, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Acts is showing us, as Luke describes in these words, what's happening in Thessalonica with Paul, Timothy, and Silas, their ministry, this new church. See, they were torn away in person, physically, but not in heart. They couldn't tear them away in heart. We had a great desire to see you face to face. Paul says again and again, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. How did Satan hinder them? Well, one way that we can see here is it was by evil men. It was by evil men that was used here. The Bible tells us that wicked men were chosen. They were used in these events that caused Paul's departure. But we also see that although he was forced to flee to Berea and then forced to move on to Athens, as the distance grew, while Paul's location grew farther and away from these new believers, it was only in person, not in heart. And I'm going to explain that in a sec. See, his desire was to get back to this new church, to see them face to face, and to continue with his teaching, the establishing of their faith. When you hear establish, you have to know that that's a continuation. We want to continue to build on a foundation. We want to build on what's been taught. Now, look at verses 19 and 20 in your text. Let's move on. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Like a parent, and I know there's a lot of us in here, like a parent who tells their child, I'm so proud of you. That takes that child a million miles, doesn't it? I'm so proud of you. Or a parent stating, you know what? You are my joy. You are my joy. That's appropriate boasting, isn't it? It's not sinful pride boasting. Do you know what the distinction is when it comes to boasting? It's what one is boasting about. For instance, you could have pers uh, person A right here boasting about the merits of their work. Oh, you should see what I do and how I serve and what I give. Salvation is mine. That's inappropriate, sinful pride boasting. But then you have appropriate boasting when, when someone, person B, uh, says, look at Jesus' power in my weakness. I want to boast in my weakness so you can see the power of Jesus. That's appropriate boasting. And what Paul is doing is appropriate because this boasting leads to Christ's glory displayed through the witness of Paul and his co-workers in ministry. 
This boasting is, will lead to Christ's glory being displayed. So it is appropriate. So like an athlete receiving a crown for victory, Paul used a lot of the, the athletic uh, imagery, games, like a crown of victory. Paul believes that the church of Thessalonica, along with all those that he has ministered to, will be a legacy before the Lord upon his return. Look at this presentation. Jesus Christ, look at this presentation. You sent me out, and look, look, look what I'm able to present. He sees it as a legacy, and it brings him great joy. So his hope, his joy, his crown, Paul says, it's you. Thessalonica, look at me, it's you. You are my joy. You are my glory and joy. So just like a child looking to his or her parents, you know when you witness your parents just beaming with pride? And you can feel that love, right? You can feel that. It feels good. This is what Paul is expressing. If the church could see his face, they would witness this kind of boasting. They would witness this kind of affection and pride in the work that they were doing in the establishment of their faith. That's where we're at. It's you. All right, look at chapter 3 here, 1 Thessalonians 3. Let's look at these five verses. This is all part of the same story. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Wow, that is concern. Folks, Acts 17 in relation to, the, to, to this letter, it's very important. See, Acts 17 tells us that Paul and Silas left for Berea when the issue occurred in Thessalonica. Get out of here, Paul. So they left. Timothy stayed and joined them later in Berea. But then while they were in Berea, the agitators came, the same evil men, that mob, they came. And Paul was sent to Athens and then, of course, Timothy and um, Silas would join him later. And then they would all move on to Corinth, where this letter was written. It's all biblical. The account's there, step by step. See, Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica. He was sent back. And Paul's concern was growing. You can tell that he was greatly troubled at the thought of these new believers being left to their afflictions uh, that were present in Thessalonica, and they were present, and he was greatly concerned. So Timothy was sent to establish, and Timothy was sent back to exhort these believers' faith. He was following up. Paul feared that the tempter, the tempter, who had orchestrated his removal from the Thessalonians, was also turning these believers away from the faith and the teachings that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had invested themselves in, right? The investment of themselves in the investment of the gospel. Paul could bear it no longer, so he sent Timothy back. 
following up. We cannot forget this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We're going to put it up for you. It says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. See, Paul has a passionate, passionate connection to this church, and Paul also has a passionate commitment to this church. So, Timothy, you've got to go back. We are not going to leave them like this. Follow up. Years ago, I guess when computers first came out, if some of my younger people want to make fun of me, years ago, I had clients in my job that were big in trading stocks, stock market stuff. Some were traders, some were big-time investors. But I knew nothing about it, so I learned. And I've never gotten involved in it, but I learned. And I played this game where it was real-life investing. The only thing fake was the $100,000 you got to start with. That was fake money because it was a game. But all the stock, the the whole exchange, all the numbers uh, and everything was real as if you were investing. And I played this game for months and, you know, ups and downs, right? But I researched the companies that I wanted so I could talk with my clients too. And, and, And I enjoyed learning about it. And you know what? About a month and a half later, I was number three in the nation for top. That's fake money. I wasn't, I wasn't making any money, but I was number three in investments in the nation. And you're talking, you know, 20 plus thousand people playing this game. And I enjoyed learning about it. But what I got out of this about the stock thing, let me tell you the difference between investors and traders in the stock market, because I really want to paint a picture of Paul's ministry and what we're to model. A trader in stock is making decisions minute by minute, okay, in the hope of just shaving off small profits um, that measure basically in fractions of a dollar. An investor, on the other hand, typically buys or sells a stock based on views about the company and the economy at large. In other words, traders are more like wheelers and dealers. They pursue short-term profits. Uh, Traders may have no confidence whatsoever in the companies in which they are buying stock, but because they buy this stock, it may be that they're smelling an immediate payoff. Here's a quick some quick money. It's quick change. By contrast, investors are in it for the long haul. And this is Paul, the long haul. They chain themselves to the mast, if you will. And and investors commit their money to a stock believing that over a period of time, and we're talking even decades, that the stock will pay strong dividends uh, and steadily grow in value, a massive return, right? See, investors aren't flustered by the typical ups and downs of the market. That's not what gets them because they believe in the quality of the company. They believe in the product. They believe in its leaders. In the kingdom of God, there are also investors and traders. They come to Christ with very different goals, though. Traders in the kingdom want God to improve their lot in this world. And if following Christ becomes too hard or this is too painful, they'll just sell out. They'll dump that stock. But investors in the kingdom, they stay true to Christ no matter what happens in this world, knowing that the eternal dividends await them. That's Paul's joy. And that's what he's talking about, these eternal dividends. This illustrates perfectly the report that Paul received from Timothy. And we have to remember, at the beginning of this letter, the 180 is revealed. Now, let me explain a 180. 
A 180 is you're going one direction, and you turn, and you go the other direction. It's a redirection. It's turning. A 180, I consider repentance a 180. Now, I'm going back to my BMX days and skateboarding days. That's where the 180 comes from for me. But it's one direction, and then you're changing. You're turning. And that's the change, the 180. That is what Paul saw, and that was the joy that he was experiencing. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. I'm going to read this to you. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That word turned is the 180. That word turned is the change, and this is what is bringing Paul great joy. We have to understand why Paul is so relieved, though, to hear this report. I don't know if you've been wondering this yet, but why is he so relieved? See, Paul knows that they responded to the gospel. He knows that. And he also knows that they responded, um, uh, that the Holy Spirit is, it was working in them. He knows that. But somehow, at some point in time, during all this persecution, when he had to leave the people, this persecution causing a further distance between Paul and the Thessalonian church, you know, from Berea to Athens to Corinth, there, something had to have happened, and he had to ask himself, I wonder, was it real? Have you ever done that? Ah, did that happen? Is it real? Was it in vain? Was all that in vain? Had the tempter, <clears throat> excuse me, succeeded? Had the tempter succeeded in undoing what myself and Silas and Timothy had worked so hard to do? Was it for real? Well, we're going to look at Paul's joy in ministry here as he realizes the fruitful evidence of his ministry and the reality, the reality of their faith. Look at 1 Thessalonians. We're still in chapter 3. Let's finish this chapter 6 through 13 together. <clears throat> But now that Timothy had come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless And holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The good news is reported. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their endurance of hope that we read about in chapter one, their fond remembrance of Paul and his team during his ministry. See, from Paul's great distance, geographically, not heart, geographically, he wondered if these new Christians' faith had remained intact. Did it remain intact? Did they give in to temptation? Did they abandon their faith? Did the tempter, who is Satan, did he take advantage of these new converts? 
Were the missionary efforts in vain? Was all of this in vain? And with Timothy coming back and reporting all that he witnessed, Paul rejoices. See, this report brought comfort to Paul in his very own afflictions that he was suffering. And he says, for now we live. We live. This is an expression of his elation at hearing this news. We can live. So, this is how, excuse me, this is his joy in ministry. They were standing fast in the Lord. They were enduring. They were persevering. And the fruitful evidence that they were leaning on the Lord. That is why this church was enduring, because they were leaning on the Lord and what they had been taught. What really hit home for me, though, what really hit home in reference to Paul's joy is in verse 9. You can look at it. In verse 9 where it says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? Boy, that hit me. See, Paul's joy, folks, is overflowing. He has been comforted and his joy is overflowing. And as he articulates his thanksgiving in terms of a question, it seems to be hinging on if he could really fully return to or repay God with thanksgiving. How can I repay you? It's like repayment is beyond Paul's ability, and so his thanksgiving can hardly equal the joy he feels. I have to ask you, church family, have you ever been so thankful when you're praying to God, you've been so thankful in your expression of gratitude, you don't even have the words? You can think of what's happening. You can think of what God has done in your life or what miracles have been formed, but have you ever said, I'm so thankful, I can't even put the words together? How does Paul thank God? How does he repay him in thanksgiving? It can't even match up with his joy. He he doesn't know what to say. You can tell Paul is passionate, passionate about this church. So, Paul modeled for us in how he ministered. How did he do that? We talked about it. Boldness, honesty, and um, love with his passionate commitment to God, along with his compassion for the church. And here we have another model coming up, folks. We have another model. We have a model in how to minister. But now here's this one. This is the one where the joy comes out of that ministry, where you get to experience the 180, okay? The change. See, his model... Uh, reveals something very important, and it was in this last section of our text, something very important. We have two specific petitions in Paul's prayer requests. And please note that prayer is the focus here as Paul petitions God. He wanted to be face-to-face with the people, did he not? He desired that, but he was there in heart. And we can see his heart in his heartful prayer request. So let's talk about the model he's giving us right now in this. Number one, Paul wants to return to the people. He tells them, I am asking God to direct our way back to you because he wants to follow up. He wants to get back and establish their faith. He wants to fill in what is lacking. He wants to encourage them. He wants to continue building. Folks, we are never finished discipling. We are never finished discipling. Paul 
teaches us that. All he wanted to do was get back and pick up where he left off. There's the first petition to God. There's our first model in making disciples. Number two, it's all about mature growth. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just like we do for you. There it is again, like we do. Imitate us. What's he talking about? He's talking about mature growth. He's talking about spiritual growth. I want you to abound all the more. And why? Because all of this equates to an established heart, blameless and holy. This is how he wants to present them to Jesus, established, blameless, and holy. Folks, we are never finished discipling, but you know what else? We are never finished being discipled. We are never finished, and this is how we want you. This is how I want myself. We want to be presented to God at the coming of Jesus, blameless and holy. And there's a model for us to get there. Our joy, our glory, Paul says, it's you. It's you. Folks, we all have a mission in the Great Commission. We do. We're to evangelize and we're to edify. We're to reach and teach. There's a verse that just brings all this home, and I'm going to use it. It's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas on one of their specific journeys there. It's in Acts 14, 21 and 22. I want to read this to you. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you see this? They made disciples, many disciples. And what did they do? They returned to strengthen those disciples and to courage. Just like Paul modeled for us, I want to return to you and I want you to grow. There is your model for making disciples. We know all about what fruitful evidence looks like. He's modeled for us also how to minister, but this is the joy of the ministry. This is getting back to those people and helping them grow. The church today, sometimes the church today puts their focus on a person uh, making a decision for Christ and then dismissing the deep concern for that person to grow in Christ. And yes, that does happen quite a bit for Christ, and then abandoning them, orphaning them, like Paul's concerned with the Thessalonican church. Follow up. I want to get back to you because I want you to grow. Paul was always developing a plan. He was always developing a plan to pursue this continued growth. And our church should do the same thing. If we're truly going to model this, our church should do the same thing. Because what is the alternative to allow these people to remain infants, I'm going to introduce you to Christ, and I'm glad you're saved. Believe me, I'm, that's, that's awesome. But now I'm going to abandon you and leave you as an infant. Or do we make disciples? Here's the process, and you'll know where I'm coming from, Christians. You're either planting the seed, or you're either watering the ground, 
or you're either tending to that plant and its growth. And if you're blessed, you'll see that plant bloom. You'll get to experience all the fruits of everyone's labor, possibly your own, and see that person bloom, that 180, that change. But a lot of times, our task in the Great Commission is just planting the seed. We never see the fruits of our labor with individuals. Somebody else gets to experience that. A lot of times, maybe we only water the ground, and that's our task in the process of making disciples. Possibly it's tending to the growth. Maybe we do experience a person blooming with the 180, with the full change, and it's all because of someone else's fruit, uh, fruitful labor. It's what they endured in teaching and planting that seed, but we get to benefit from it. But do you understand the process as a whole God keeps track of. God knows you, what you've done. He knows what you're setting before Him. As these people are presented to Christ, He knows what you've done, whether you planted, watered, or tended to that plant. That is what we're commissioned to do. The mission in our commission, in ministry, and we're all ministers of God's Word, all of us are ministers, we are called to make disciples, and that's what this process is. Now, in closing, I want to do this. In my installation service, I can't even remember the date, a while back, the installation service, I made a vision and a mission statement, and I read it to the church. I should have brought prizes, if anybody could remember it. I would have given you a little prize, but I'm going to read it to you. Here's, here it is. First off, my vision for the church, this is where I want us in the future. Grace Fellowship Church, we are a church grounded in God's Word. We are unified in purpose. We are unceasingly pursuing a closer relationship with Jesus Christ as we mature in the faith. That's my vision, but let me tell you my mission, because you may not remember it. It's simple. My mission is this. Our goal is to equip believers and the task of presenting the gospel-centered message of Jesus. That's it. That's my mission. That's what I like the mission for this church. But do you want to know what my goals are in that mission? I read this to you. Here's my first goal in my mission statement. Teaching and discipling others so that they will be raised up to teach and disciple others. Right? First goal. Exactly what Paul is telling us to do. Make disciples. My second goal, actively participate in life groups, Bible studies, Wednesday night service, discipleship, Sunday worship, men's and women's fellowship. Why do I say all that? Because this is where we are going to find our growth as we fellowship with each other and in God's Word. If we're actively participating. And then last, to missionally, to missionally present the gospel of Christ locally, our mission field, and through the support of missions globally. I had three goals to the mission statement of <clears throat> equipping believers in the task of presenting the gospel-centered message of Jesus. And that's what I want for Grace Fellowship. Uh, Paul is teaching us that. Make disciples. You know, we're running out of teachers in this church. Did you know that? Did you guys know we're running out of teachers? We are. You ever seen your gaslight hit that little orange warning? That's where we're at here at Grace Fellowship with teachers. It's been a great concern of mine. And I have the privilege of teaching a group called Ablaze, Life Group, 
And I said, listen, here's what we got to do. Because uh, I've been, I've been, I'm the one that's been enabling them. I'm the, I'm, I was the problem. I said, we are going to make disciples in this class. I need teachers. So Wednesday night, I had eight people raise their hand and commit to me, a couple grudgingly now. They had to be pushed. And then one this morning I talked to, we have nine people that we're going to raise up as teachers for this church. And they're going to start practicing and learning how to do this on Wednesday nights because we have to make disciples. We can't keep coasting. We can't keep putting Band-Aids on the wound. We've got to make an effort. And I am terrified to stand before God and go, I know I could have done better. I could have done it. No, we're starting now. We need teachers in this church, and I'm starting with that group. So they're going to practice and they're going to learn, but that's what I'm talking about. Folks, if you want to do a Bible study at your home and invite friends over, my goodness. If you want to start a new life group outside this church, my goodness, yes, do that. Anything to make disciples because we all have a mission here. We all have a mission within the Great Commission, and that is presenting Jesus to others, making disciples so that they in turn can make disciples. And that's the joy of ministry right there. That's the joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father God, we thank you so much for this service. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what this means to me as well, Father. This has hit me to the core. Father God, I know my faults. I pray that you convict others, Father, of theirs. Father, we are called. We are called to this mission. Let us take it seriously, Father. We have to be people that disciple, and we have to be people that are discipled. Father, it's never-ending. Paul reveals that. Lord, I pray right now over this message that we have the affectionate desire to follow up with those that we love, that are, who are established in the faith, Father, that are walking in your love, Father, walking in your word, that we can build each other up and encourage, that we follow up, Father. And I also pray, Lord, that we continue in spiritual growth that we are become active in our church, participating in what's being offered so that we can grow all the more in you, Lord. We need to be active and we need to make disciples, Lord, as we ourselves are also being discipled. Father, that's what I'm praying for for this church. There are so many warrior hearts here today, just warriors for you, people that love you. Father God, I pray that you just just ignite us. Let your spirit ignite each of every one of us into action, into making disciples for this church, for this community, Father, for your world. That's what I pray today. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Father, with an inexpressible gratitude, Lord, for your love for us, for what you've done for us. Father, let us just bring honor and glory to you as we present you to others Lord, let us make disciples. Let that be our joy, Father. Let us be able to be a part of the process that presents these people holy and blameless before you at your return. Lord, we love you. We love you and we thank you for everything, all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.